While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Maybe that's Fall's way of combating Christmas creep. By creeping like, into summer? <laughs> fall can't happen anymore. Like, fall's not a thing anymore. No, it isn't anymore. Because we want summer to last till, like, the end of September. Basically. Because we like, we like summer so much. Mm-hmm. And winter, like, Christmas starts creeping in, like, before Halloween has even happened. So that gives fall like three weeks to do its thing at this point fall is down to like a day all the leaves fall off the trees and then it's christmas time yeah pretty much yeah what what would you call it fall fall diet it needs to be alliterative diet fall diet <laughs> oh you mean oh uh, you don't mean the cons you don't mean like the super short fall you mean fall creep yeah Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And Fall Diet Follies. Spring is Fall... What did you say? Fall Follies. That's my musical review about how fall is getting shorter every year. It's really cutting and incisive. Uh-huh. hmm I would just call spring diet fall. That works for me. Spring is like backwards fall. <laughs> Reverse fall. Like, if you hit the rewind button on fall, you get spring. <laughs> I don't think fall involves flowers, like, shrinking into the ground. I, I don't know. It happens so quickly. I don't even... Nobody really knows what happens during fall anymore. Climate change and all, you know? That's not real. Fall's just getting shorter on its own. Fall was always going to get shorter. See, this We're is a just point here of, while it's happening. This is a point of like philosophical difference between you and I is that I would like I'm cool because fall means things taste like pumpkin and I am generally fine with that. And you are anti pumpkin, which is a debate that we've had, I think, every fall since we started recording the show. So I don't know if we need to have it again. We just I'm need not... to know that I'm right and you're wrong. And that's how it shakes out every year. I'm not anti pumpkin pumpkin i'm just anti-pumpkin everything you're an anti-pumpkin extremist and look at this fall follies happening right now it is august <laughs> and it is barely august and you and i are talking about fall fall, fall follies at work fall follies autumnal acrobatics let's talk about books andrew okay. each week i heard from someone maybe it was you that each week one of us reads a book and the other person has usually not read that book. Mm-hmm. And so we get on the internet and we talk about it for an hour. And sometimes we cover the book. Sometimes we cover the author. Sometimes we make each other laugh. Maybe somebody else laughs. That's how we do, right? Yeah, that's pretty much how it goes down every week for, every week for like 130 <laughs> weeks. 
Um, this week I read the book, and it was Then We Came to the End, which is the first novel by Joshua Ferris. Is now, it I don't... end then, or is it Then We Came to the End? Then We Came to the End. Oh, okay. I would always add an and. That's why I ask, because I'm going to say it wrong for the rest of the show. That's what I understand. <laughs> I, I wondered, was Joshua Ferris related to the guy who invented the Ferris wheel? Oh, see, I thought he was related to Ferris Bueller. Yeah, no, it makes sense because people with the first names that match other people's last names are related. That's how names work. Sometimes you name your kid after your mom's last name. That just is like a thing. Okay. Now, Joshua Ferris is probably not anyone's mom, so I don't really know what I'm talking about, but that's fine. That's par for the course. That's the other thing that usually happens. Yeah, we didn't cover that in the intro. It's named after George Washington Gale Ferris Jr., the Ferris wheel. Great. Is this book about Ferris wheels? No, it's not. I'm just reading about Ferris wheels now. All right. We're just covering all of our bases. Google honored George Ferris on February 14th, 2013, his 154th birthday with an interactive doodle on its front page. Those doodles are getting more and more complicated each day. I don't like I stopped being able to identify the references years ago. Yeah, that one with that Pac-Man one was pretty good. Yeah, but that was also of 100 billion million doodles ago um what did you find out about joshua ferris other than the fact that he didn't invent the ferris wheel and has no association with ferris bueller which is apparently something that we need to clear up yeah it was on my mind uh joshua ferris ferris joshua uh was born in 1974 he's makes him what let me do some math real quick he is 40 he's 40 he's gonna be 41 this coming november okay and uh i did math yeah i didn't do that math real quick even though i said i would sorry everyone and (laughs) podcast about books (laughs) uh like we bemoan on many a modern author show uh there isn't as much to know about joshua ferris as some of our historical authors like he doesn't have like a cool house that's haunted He doesn't have, like, 50 years of ragging on other authors to talk about. Um, He doesn't have a social media presence. He's kind of purposefully not cultivated one. He wants... uh, How does he further his brand? I think he writes books. (laughs) I I think that's his brand. See, maybe not having social media is in itself a brand, but it's... I don't know. You're really, you're really rolling the dice on that one. It's a good idea for a brand, but the problem is all the brands exist on social media. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to get your non-social media brand on social media? Right, because the whole purpose of brands is to converse with other brands. Oh, I just got a headache. He once called the internet a force for a force of anxiety. This is an interview about his most recent book, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. He's got three. He's got uh, Then We Came to the End, The Unnamed, and To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, which is about a dentist who is an atheist and encounters like an online cult religion. I think that's the best summary I can give you. I don't think he's wrong about the internet. <laughs> Being a force of anxiety? Yeah, like it's, we do worry about it a lot. Even if well, we're just trying to tend to our brands, we worry, well, about, <laughs> we worry about how our brand's doing. It's like a garden. Here's my brand garden. 
I have to go out and water it every day. And by water it, I mean tweet Facebook a bunch. Facebook yeah. yeah. Uh, he said that the reason it's a force of anxiety is that anyone who wants to be completely sure of their information, personal, political, historical, is faced with a huge number of sources willing to provide it. It's like a huge hall of mirrors kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Which I, I think that's fairly true. I tend to rely, over-rely perhaps, on things like Wikipedia just because the sheer size of it has convinced me that it's reliable. The thing about Wikipedia that I hate is, like, I do like starting there for research because that is usually where you can find a lot of, like, relevant links gathered. Now, the sucky thing about Wikipedia is the links that, like, the, the references, the footnotes that refer to like books and stuff you can't check them without like buying the book yes which is that's true something that like the pioneers did back in caveman times <laughs> usually the references are in the form of links and for links that are more than say half half a decade old the likelihood that one is going to be alive still or not or like accurate or not when you click it is like 50 50 at best yeah so that's why it, Wikipedia is dumb. So like it, it pretends to be, or maybe it even it like it, it's it purports to be exhaustive, but the foundation that it's built on is really ephemeral, and <laughs> and, and that's and just that's just the state of research in 2015. If you ever want a, a good time, go into the edit history of a Wikipedia page, particularly a contentious one. Because yeah. then you will really discover what the internet is made out of, and it's people with too much time on their hands. Mm-hmm. The talk page <laughs> is even better for that kind of thing because it's just people arguing about it. People arguing about the edit page, basically. Oh God, I can't handle it. Um, Welcome to Andrew and Craig explain <laughs> Wikipedia. Sorry, it podcast. Uh, Ferris studied at the University of Iowa. He later got an MFA from UC Irvine. One of his first jobs outside of university was writing, like translating scientific papers into English. I, I want to bring this up because it seems like it dovetails into his work in advertising Wait, like, as well. Into English from science? Well, from, both like, from okay. other languages. Um, like, you know, pretty smart people writing about smart stuff, but the smart people not necessarily having a. Uh, a huge grasp on the English language, but they were writing about stuff that he had to learn about to then distill it. So you're simultaneously like kind of improving the, the English while distilling the science. Okay. So, you know, he's talked about that being a, a real clear reminder that every piece of writing has an audience and clarity above all else. Right. Yes. Right. Um, and then he kind of took that experience into advertising. I think he worked in advertising for three years, uh, starting in 1998, which I think this will directly tie into the book this week, Andrew. It will, yeah. Um, and he said he started doing a lot of, started with a lot of business-to-business advertising, which is like a whole thing that you don't necessarily think about when you're sitting on your couch watching commercials. Yeah, like you but don't. Like- it's you know where I mean? so much of the money is. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, businesses are the ones with money, and so you want to advertise to other businesses to buy your business things. But the problem is, if you're in a business and some other business is coming up to business at you, you know what they're doing. Like, Inception. Oh, God. 
Like you know all the tricks, especially if you're a business that sells other things and someone tries to sell things to you. Like you sell widgets all day and someone comes up and is like, hey, I got these wadgets to help you sell widgets. Let me try and sell you these wadgets. You're like, I know all your tricks, wadget guy. Stop it. Except I could really use that wadget to help me sell these widgets. Uh, this is the worst Dr. Seuss book I've ever read. <laughs> the wadgets of the widgets. Here's <laughs> Joshua Bueller. Yes. Um, so that's that. His uh, This book uh, won the Penn Hemingway Award in 2007. Uh, I don't know that we've talked about this award before, actually, because in my research, we haven't covered any of those books on the show it's four debut american novels okay uh starting like the 70s i think we've gotten one or two recommendations that are on this list we just haven't covered them on the show uh and then apparently this book andrew i don't know if you ran across this um the title owes is is like the first line of a book by don delillo called americana which is about a TV executive turned avant-garde filmmaker. It's like a it's from 1971 and kind of starts with a malaise about corporate America that seems to inform this book a little bit. It certainly does have a little bit of malaise to it, yeah. Uh and Delillo is I don't know about you Andrew, I've never read a book by Don Delillo. I've not read Don Delillo. And Don, <laughs> it's a Don, Don Delillo. <laughs> His name crops up when I read about other authors I've read. Uh, he's kind of a contemporary of Thomas Pynchon. He is a precursor to Foster Wallace and Jonathan Franzen. And yeah, Ferris has cited him as an influence, obviously. But I haven't really felt a, com- a big compulsion to fill that particular Don DeLillo gap, given that every person I just named is a part of the 20th century straight male canon. Yeah. So... I'm not like rushing well, I haven't, to like, Delillo I, on I the show. At, I look at Infinite Jest and I look at like Gravity's oh, Rainbow or whatever, yeah. and it's like you Infinite know, Jest. Infinite I would, Jest. I would like to have read that. Yeah, but, I'm glad I've read one of those things. But I don't. I like. I I just can't for like light pleasure reading. I feel like neither of them. <laughs> neither of them is quite what I'm looking for. <laughs> That's fair. In a beach uh, read. <laughs> so yeah, that's. I think that's what I got. The the only other stuff I could find kind of pertains more to the book itself. So I kind of want to dive into the book. Yeah, before yeah, yeah. We, Let's do that before we get too far afield. Andrew, what the heck is this book? Okay, then we came to the end. Published in two thousand seven, like you said, it's Ferris' first novel, and it is like I said last week. It is the most accurate and also like bleakest account of upper middle class office worker ennui that I've ever that I've ever encountered like it's very as 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 a middle class person who has worked in many offices there are a lot of things about this that ring true in ways that are both like flattering and super not flattering yeah okay um the most interesting like stylistic choice about it and one that's one that's normally talked about when this book gets brought up is that it's written like the bulk of it is written in the first person plural perspective we so, are we recorded a podcast yes. we are two guys who went to college together and decided to start a podcast yeah we are 
each people who have different feelings about how this bit of the podcast is going. We really, it's true. We do. <laughs> See, okay, yeah. So you you were accurately demonstrating as a grammar professor would <laughs> what the first person plural is. Yeah. Um, could you also but, say some of us some of us are recording a podcast you could you could also say that but the point i'm trying to make in between your uh your muzzy over there is that <laughs> just we love you is that like while you were saying that and and you're you're saying it in the first person plural but like you are a recognizable voice like i could pick you out of the crowd and you would just be a person the thing about the first person plural in this and you, and and that you don't realize even until it sneaks up on you after you've been reading for a while is there is no specific person saying we all the time like it is yeah, it's yeah. like you don't th- there's this big group of office workers and we're going to we're going to run down a list of like a partial list of them later um but the the we sort of knows everything that's going on Mm-hmm. But it it's like there's no specific person or like combination of persons who need to be sitting down for like the we voice to be active. Yeah, that makes total sense. It is, is it is yeah it is a like non specific narrative voice. In the same way that you can, I, I feel like there have been comparisons for this book to um, just kind of a general. <sighs> like population in Victorian novels, just like talking about townspeople, mm-hmm. like just everyone in the town did this. And it was a kind of a, a way to just s- provide context and do exposition without kind of closely following a character. Yeah, kind of. I mean, except the the thing about this book is it's all that, like it's all. We- yeah. Except yeah, like, yeah, yeah. well, okay. It's, it's split up into three sections. The first and the third sections are the longest ones. <laughs> And those ones are the ones that are written in first person mm. plural. Okay. And the middle, the middle section, we'll we'll talk about a bit later when we talk about a couple of specific characters. Um, so where do we work in we, this book? We work at an advertising firm at in the first dot com bust, basically. So late nineties, very early to very early pre nine eleven. Pre, is this like around pets.com yes this is a, the circa circa pets.com i really pets.com don't understand empire. why pets.com is like a timeline marker but i know that it is it's because like we all remember that super bowl ad with the like talking sock puppet dog or whatever yes i do but like do we remember what pets.com did like pet supplies i guess right sure <laughs> i don't know like that was back that's back when like back when Amazon just sold books instead of becoming Ugh. instead of becoming this weird like cyber Walmart. How did we live? I don't know. When we had to go to all these different sites to get different things. Ugh. Um so so yeah, we we are we remember the fat times, but we are currently living in lean times. Okay. Um and let's let's talk about how accurately this captures like the office drone thing. Um, sure. We were talking about the importance of um, of first sentences in books, and and at some point, I'd really like to collect like all the first sentences of all the books that we've read because um, P.F. Kluga, who we've read for the show and who was a writing professor I had in college, um, 
basically told me that that you could tell whether a book was going to be good or not, like based on the first sentence. <laughs> I think and that's I don't know. Fair. I don't know if that's always true, but it certainly me, helps. It gave me an appreciation of first sentences that I might not have had otherwise. Yeah, I so really that, also really like end ending sentences, really good ones. Yeah, those are good too. But I mean, it's it's easy. It's way easier to read a, a first sentence than a last sentence because you that's have to read all the sentences in between. So I've I've got I've probably read more intro sentences in my life i mean you could just like open the back of the book a book any book is a choose your own adventure andrew if you really (laughs) work hard enough i guess like you just have to you have to draw the map yourself (laughs) um the first sentence of this book is we were fractious and overpaid Ooh, we were fractious and overpaid so we so you got the first person plural thing and then were this happened in the past and i mean it all happens in the past but this specifically is in reference to the pre-bust thing okay and then and then um one other sentence from the from the early book that i want to pull out that i think really captures pretty much everything that goes on is uh we had visceral rich memories of dull interminable hours okay unpack that for me you've got a bunch of office workers who are basically just sitting around waiting to be laid off. Like there's not a lot to do, certainly not as much as there was to do when things were good. Mm -hmm. And they've got to fill their hours with something. And normally it's minutia, like who stole whose chair and what prank did crazy Tom pool this week. And like they have, they have, like unnecessarily detailed memories of all the little tiny things and all the real and perceived slights and all the personality ticks and all of the relationships that everybody had with everybody. Like it's just, it's not like when you work in an office like this, the stuff that you are doing and like concerning yourself with day to day, like big picture, not super important, but when you're in it, you everything feels like it has some kind of import that it doesn't really to anybody else. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Uh, It's interesting. The office that I work in is really small. Like it's, it's a small group of people and it's a mission driven theater. So that, so ostensibly we are all there, not just to punch the time clock. Right. Like there are days where you show up. This is more in reference, I think, to that that unique class of of people who are sort of punching a time clock, but it's it's a very like white collar kind of time clock punching. Like it's not it's not like a factory worker kind of thing. It's a it's like an information worker or knowledge worker kind of thing. To like borrow a couple of buzz phrases, like <laughs> you're do, you're doing stuff, but you're not like manufacturing stuff like you're making you're making stuff but not not like tangible stuff well i I was just gonna say it's like the next step of the industrial revolution alienation effect right where the problem used to be you would work in a factory and you would build widgets and then you wouldn't see where they were going and you wouldn't see who was using them Mm -hmm. and so there was this like why am i building this stuff if i never derive any real benefit from it and now we're in this like well i just jam on a keyboard until my eyes go blind and then i go home 
and I eat a Hunger Man dinner, and then I go back, and I do it again. Because <laughs> I'm I a ref- Hunger Man. And I refill my stapler, and then I lose my stapler, and then I blame Dolores, and then I send more emails, and then I go home, and I'm out of Hunger Man's. So hungry I go man. to the path mark. One hungry, hungry man. Hungry's men. <laughs> Many hungry men. So yeah, it's like the next level of what am I even doing? Yeah, right. We we had had a toy client, a car client, a long distance carrier, and a pet store chain. We did TV, print, direct mail, and internet. We had a business to business division. We drank too much on the weekends. We had the great good fortune and shortcomings of character that marked every generation that had never seen war. If we had been recovering from the after effects of a significant campaign, we might have been grateful to be where we were, eager even. As it was, it was just us and our struggles to move up a notch chair-wise. It was counting ceiling tiles in everyone's office to determine who had the higher tile count. Sean Smith was in the first Gulf War, but that hardly impressed us because all he did was drive a tank around a bunch of sand woefully devoid of enemy craft. And when pressed, that was the extent of his recall. Wow. So yeah, <laughs> hitting like this book is is like consciously like super consciously like does not want to deal with with nine eleven or the effect of nine eleven on these people. Like it it ends talking about the end of August two thousand one and the first ten days of September. Like and very specifically, not specifically. It just there's a there's a passage at the end that mentions the end of August and the first ten days of September, and then there's a time jump to like the mid two thousands. Why do you think? Why? Why is that either kind of irrelevant, or is it like this kind of big gaping nothing that's like casting a shadow over the book? I don't know that it's casting a shadow, but if you want to capture a a picture of a specific time. Mm-hmm. You do have to define it ba- around. Like if, that a if you're trying, if you're trying to, if you're trying to capture that specific like economic downturn, like that dot com bubble burst, like nine eleven is 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 it muddies the waters a bit. Like it makes the book about that a little. Like just because, yeah, 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 that's one of those rare things in the post internet age that like every it's like a universal thing and we all have like our own connections to it and our own memories of it i mean like not all obviously because like there are 14 year olds who were not you know who were not alive when it happened who are editing wikipedia pages right now yes so they are participating in the internet but they do not remember an internet before that thing they know that jet fuel can't melt steel beams oh stop i can't but they weren't they weren't there to see get off of reddit right now (laughs) um well that's yeah there is there's an immense amount of just straight up privilege big thing like it's a big thing that happened yeah yeah and and advertising is an interesting industry and i i think that he must have chosen it not just because he had experience there, but because it is a it is a crucially dependent and otherwise empty form of like work as a concept. Yeah, and it's like it's creative, but it's creativity in the service of of like best case convincing people to buy things that they need. Worst case, tricking people into buying things that they don't need. Yeah, well, and I don't want to say that that advertising is not. I don't. I say I realize what I just said, and it sounds like I hate advertising, and I don't. It's just that 
in it seems like what he's well it it is a fraught industry um but it seems like given what he's concerned with it's the best metaphor for kind of a work that doesn't produce a thing on its own It, it is like you said it is in service of other already existing thing yeah yeah and i don't i wouldn't even see this book as an indictment of like advertising in particular i'm sure it's about i'm sure it's about advertising because that's what ferris had experience with and i'm sure that a lot of the names in this book have real world faces that (laughs) that Mm, match up with them like i don't know if i could write a whole book about like working in a tortilla chip factory (laughs) I think you should like a third shift tortilla chip factory. But if I were to write that book, a lot of the characters would be either real people with different names or the combination of several different people. Let's co-author a book where in alternating chapters, you are working at a tortilla chip factory and I'm working at a cold stone creamery. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the book, you will dip your chip into Into some some ice ice cream. cream. And I will sing about it. And then the world ends. <laughs> then the world ends. Like I'm dipping the chip into the ice cream as somebody is dropping the bomb somewhere. It's terrible. And that's just the last thing that happens. Then we literally came to the end. <laughs> then we came to the end too. By Talk Andrew to and me. Craig. <laughs> Talk to me about the people that make up this we and and kind of how do we learn about them given the fact that he's writing in this voice um the book i mean it just stops occasionally to describe to you things about that these people so so here's an example that i pulled up is a uh, benny shazberger great his great character there's some good names in this um, he is kind of an office, uh, office, an office, <laughs> office gossip. Oh, okay. That's a phrase. Office, office gossip. Office. Um, and what? And he like people. He's one of those people who who is likable, and people you want to tell him stuff, and he tells you stuff. Um, and the book pauses to say, practically everyone shared their thoughts with Benny because everyone loved Benny, which was why some of us hated his guts. <laughs> So, I mean, the book is pretty funny in parts. I mean, it's also bleak and and yeah. All right, let me put a tab in our in our character conversation. Okay, how funny is this book? Is it pretty funny? It's pretty funny. It's funny because of the way it turns phrases a lot of the time. Yeah. So you get you get little samples like that that you come back to that that are humorous, but like the. I don't know the subject matter of the book itself. If you're going to break it down to like a bare plot synopsis, it was a bunch of people waiting around to be laid off in an advertising firm, sit around and talk about each other. Their boss has breast cancer. And then, and then something else happens at the end that we'll get to. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, so, all right, let's talk about the cancer thing first, because that's, that's the short second part of the book. Oh, okay. Um, their boss's name is Lynn Mason. Uh, she's a partner at the ad firm. She's in her early 40s. Um, the workers respect her, but it's in that way where you kind of also fear her if you've ever had a boss like that. Like you, 
Like they, they, there's a passage where they talk about getting, like getting a one line email from her that says, don't worry so much. Like in, in response to some concerns about like their own job performance or something like that. And they will like talk amongst themselves for like hours trying to read into that line. Like what she was, what she was thinking when she wrote it. Can I just go off on how a, annoying email is for that very reason (laughs) and i'm sure it existed in memos back when we used memos and when people like put a post-it note on a dog like the office dog i don't know if people ever did that but like the office dog no i know everyone knows what you're talking about great thanks best.com I think the <laughs> dogs the f- for your office, dogs for your office, dog people. <laughs> that last one is like comma and like sup dog. It was a product of its time. I feel like that's a uh, very nineties thing. Yeah, that, yeah. Also, also, everyone was wearing tie dye and listening to Limp Bizkit. It was weird. Um, I feel like everybody emails differently. Like formality via email is so different and so fractured and that no one really knows what anyone ever means. And it's well, so Well, back easy. in the day when you had to write like a memo or a letter or something, the barrier to doing that was higher. So maybe like you did, you'd put a little more thought into it. Pr- probably. <laughs> but email is just easier to send it in 15 seconds. And maybe you're being terse or maybe you're being angry or maybe you're being unhelpful and you didn't really have... And like you get so much of it so fast that you can't really belabor every message. Is that the right use of belabor? It has more of a negative connotation, I think. But you're fine. Yeah, no, I, I used it poorly. Um, you can't. You don't. Have, you don't have time to sit and think for half an hour over every stupid message that you send. No, you don't. And and people expect their their email to kind of work differently, like. Let's not get into the fact that people may or may not know how to use reply versus reply all. That's like a whole thing. Some people are bad at signatures. Some people have like filing systems that don't match yours. And depending on, I can't even, I'm, I can't believe I'm doing an unfunny Seinfeld bit about email right What's now. What's the Andrew. deal with email? <laughs> Do you ever yeah. notice that sometimes yeah. people use conversation view and sometimes they don't use conversation view? I know that I won't really use folders. I just keep all my email. <laughs> you don't just, have to use you don't have to use folders anymore because I just search. unlimited and you just search for everything. Yeah, I which know. Which makes some it people... really fun when there's like an iOS update that breaks the search and then you can't <sighs> find any email anywhere ever again. Man, welcome to this the is a really email good. show. This is a, this good. is a good episode. <laughs> so okay. So Lynn Mason has yes. breast cancer. Sure. And the people who work for her are pretty sure she has breast cancer, but they don't know for sure because it's just one of those like office gossip things. Okay. I have to pause to say that phrase every time I say it now. That's fine. And nobody quite can figure out where the rumor got started or like why the person who started it would know in the first place. So the second part of the book is you know it's much shorter and it goes from being first person plural to like a close third person okay and it's just dealing it's dealing with her 
Um, it opens like the night before her operation because she's got like a lump. She's going to have a um, what is probably going to end up being a mastectomy. Okay. Um, and yeah, she like the book is established at this point that nobody really knows her very well, except that she probably has cancer and she definitely hates hospitals. Okay. And so she's kind of she's kind of stressing out. And she's watching The Simpsons and she's eating Chinese food and she's trying to say, she's trying to think like the last night that my life is going to be normal for the foreseeable future or maybe ever. Like Mm -hmm. what is, what is the right thing to do and what is the place to be? (laughs) Woof. And so she, you know, she, she drives around a while. The, the, it jumps in time for a bit, like to deal with her, relationship with this guy martin that is mostly sexual he's another like they're both high-powered business people and they have put their work life ahead of their home life and they don't really feel like a long-term commitment thing but he is also very like helpful in in helping her like convince her to go to the hospital and helping her through everything and just kind of being there for her even though the nature of their relationship is not so like long-termy as as this you know um and i'm not like i'm not sure what the what the right way to tackle this kind of thing is um because at the end of the book you know you've done this time jump to like the mid-2000s most people got laid off in fact pretty much everybody got laid off or found another job Mm -hmm. but they all come back together to go to the this guy named hank neary um one of the things like the first thing the book tells you about him is he's one of the few black coffee writers oh and that at the time he was working on quote a small angry book about work which i think is another thing that is like more universal than not like if 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 people haven't started a book about their workplace that seems (laughs) that seems like it might be profound then certainly people have thought about i should write a book about this place (laughs) is what most people have said yeah um, so he's he's successfully written and published a book, and so they're all like invited to his reading. And it turns out that the second part of of this book is the book that Hank wrote. Uh, okay. So he went like he went back to the hospital and talked to Lynn, and he's really the only one who did because everybody else is so intimidated by her. Mm-hmm. But she was, you know, she's she doesn't have she didn't have a lot of people in her life, and so she was very um, honest and like forthcoming with him in a way that people probably would not have expected her to be. Yeah. If only they had actually connected or attempted so, to. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that is, there are, I would say there are two big threads and then one third smaller, like distinct, but not as major threads. So Lynn and her cancer and the gossip of her coworkers about her cancer is one of the two major threads. The third smaller thread revolves around this guy named Joe Pope who is not very well liked around the office Mm -hmm. and he, you know, people kind of think he's an elitist and it's specifically because he does not like engage them in their gossip and stuff. Like he, that is, that is a crucial person in the office. Yeah. Yeah. Like he holds himself above it. And for that reason, I think Lynn, I think respects him more and he does get promoted while the rest of them are all sitting around and waiting to be, you know, walk down the hall. <laughs> huh. But that breeds some resentment and some, I don't know, like, like 
they say that you know he would never go out to lunch with you and then at one point one of them says well when's the last time that anybody asked him to go out to lunch like he's just womp womp he's he's developed this reputation and people are not going to help him like break out of it is that that seems like those are both the lynn thread and joe's thread then seem to be about the the gossip being kind of insular in this group think yeah and definitely. if if someone would just like sidestep it a little bit and say and and kind of say hey what's up with you and and i and address a person as an individual from an individual then maybe this would all kind of be better yeah and there's like when you find out what joe's deal is it is actually a rare moment of individual on individual interaction like there's this member of the group named genevieve who like it's hard to make value judgments about a lot of the people in this group because cause all of it is first person plural and yeah, you're yeah. you're in effect taking in like a lot of different and often conflicting opinions about people like within the same sentence. So go back to that thing about Benny where, you know, everyone loved Benny, which is why some of us hated his guts. Like <laughs> Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to say, like, okay, who's a good person? Who's a bad person? Like there are there are some people who you can probably put on some end of that spectrum. So Genevieve would be one of the better ones. And then there's this woman uh, named Karen Wu, who is one of the lesser ones who um, she will go to a restaurant and she'll tell people, oh, I went to this great restaurant and then everyone will go to it one by one. And by the time everyone has been to it and agreed that it's good, she would not be caught dead in that restaurant. Like she's that kind of <sighs> What is that? You can't even, that's not even a hipster. What is that? We hated that's... Karen Wu. We hated, <laughs> we hated hating Karen Wu because we feared we might be racists. The white guys, especially, oh but it God. wasn't, but it wasn't just the white guys. Benny, who was Jewish and Hank, who was black, hated Karen too. Maybe we hated Karen not because she was Korean, but because she was a woman with strong opinions in a male-dominated world. But it wasn't just the men. Marsha couldn't stand her, and she was a woman. And Marsha loved Donald Sato, so she couldn't be a racist. Donald wasn't Korean, but he was Asian of some kind, and everybody liked him as much as Marsha did, even though he didn't say a whole lot. One time, Donald did say, as he turned away from his computer for a brief moment, toward a group of four or five of us, my grandpa has this weird collection of Chinese ears. And it's just like this stream of consciousness kind of thing. But you pick up in there that Karen Wu equals bad. Like that's... That's... that's, Oh my God. That passage is amazing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because it it kind of functions... It's doing... You've talked about this a little bit, but even just hearing you read it out loud, like... It simultaneously performs some of the functions of just third person, like this person did this and this person did this, and I can say that in rapid succession because it's a novel and you're used to it, whatever. But it's also, you saying it out loud feels very natural because it does feel like a person telling a story. Or even a person like working through their own thoughts about about something or a person. It's a weird like hydra person that can talk out of many mouths and complete its own sentences and contradict itself that's uh, all right okay joshua ferris yeah so so genevieve one of the one of the better of the group of people like to the extent that such a thing exists goes out to lunch with joe because he 
so Karen has called. Okay, let's step in back. <laughs> Got to keep stepping back. Lynn has not gone in for her operation on the day that everyone is pretty sure she had an operation. Like they don't, they don't know for sure. But okay. then Karen Wu calls a hospital pretending to be Lynn and confirms that she had an appointment that morning that she did not show up for. Okay. Um, so Genevieve, like, okay. The group convinces Genevieve to convince Joe to talk to Lynn because what if she has cancer and shouldn't we be worried about her? And it's, it's this group's gossip, like so many groups of people who gossip, I think has like good and bad things. I don't think it's like innately good or innately bad. I think it all stems from everybody wanting to know everybody's business. And that does, and that happens outside of offices. It oh, yeah. happens in any, no, t- any yeah. type of tight knit group. Yeah. And, and so, you know, this, this seems like it might be noble, but I think the root of why the group convinced Genevieve like I think Joe and Genevieve have purer motives but the motives of the group that convinced them to do this in the first place is just because they like want to know <laughs> I think <laughs> like that's my read on it well so, and and sometimes a purer motive is not necessarily like pure as much as it is well I would like to be the type of person who would do this for the yeah, right reason yeah so sure. I'm going to satiate my need for knowledge with moral upstanding upstanding moral behavior <laughs> yes right you know <laughs> and so genevieve and joe have this conversation where joe like ran with this bad group of people in high school and they basically beat the crap out of a kid like they taped him up and then kept like uh, pushing him over when he hit the ground and he didn't like he kind of tried to think about standing up and like the reason he tells himself that he stayed around to watch this kid get beat up is in case they tried to take it too far so he could like keep it from going too far but then Andrew, he realized then, he, then he realizes I'm just going to finish this thing then he okay. realizes that to any outsider like to the people who find this kid all beat up like to know that he was in the group of people it does not matter what his motives are and so he resists being a part of any clique like this and that's like his motivation let me tell you about a little book called The Girl Next Door by Jack I already told You already told me about this book, and I didn't like it that time. I didn't like it either. So, yeah, just, <laughs> just the idea that if, you know, you're if you are at all part of the group, that's this is Joe's read on it, right? If you are at all part of the group, you are forever part of that group. Like Not even forever part of that group, but you, like, if you don't distance yourself from them, then you bear some responsibility for the group's actions like whether you actually do or not like you you are perceived to to have something to do with that group and what it does and you have to pay for it even if even if what was going through your mind was not the same as what was going through some other person's mind precisely yeah so that's the that's the third thread in the smaller of the two and then the other main thread is this guy named tom moda say that again Tom Moda. Okay, cool name. Um, he's a middle-aged dude. He's got a temper. His wife leaves him for a pilot, which he talks about several times. Okay. And he is not balanced. He's not well-balanced. He, okay. He starts pulling weird office pranks 
like there there's the, there are these colored polo shirts that they all have from some like team building exercise in years past and he starts wearing his to work just every single day like washing it in between days and then he takes a couple other polo shirts from coworkers and just starts wearing them all like layered over top of each other every day is that a um, prank? He leaves a sushi roll like behind somebody's bookshelf. Oh no! To just go bad and like smell worse and worse and worse. No. Um, let me read you a part of a letter from or an email from Tom Moda to somebody else because Tom is of course let go. Okay. And he's let go very early in the book, and of course, you know, the book jumps around in time a lot because. Um, one of the one of the things about the with the first person plural perspective is that, um, you, you like in theory you the reader know everything that's going on because everything is like collective and everything is we, but you also get a lot of stories like through Benny and through other people, which introduces this interesting element of like gossip and um, unreliability. Oh, of course, and exaggeration. Is, which, and, yeah, 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 which is kind of interesting. Um, so let's uh these okay these heartfelt long-winded missives of sen- sentiment wildly clashing with tom's real life behavior were laughably inappropriate schizophrenic in tone and content and always welcome respites in an otherwise ordinary day he was written up for their profanities and for composing them on company time because he had the balls to send them not only to all of us including lynn mason but to the other partners as well always organizing the send to list according to seniority an unspoken rule <laughs> He also CC'd the accounts people, the media buyers, project services, human resources, the support staff, and the barista manning the coffee bar. I passed a bad night last night, his final email in this vein began. The subject line read, I can sign you and your golf shoes to lower Wacker Drive. The tomatoes in my garden are not coming out, he continued. Maybe because I only have the weekend to work the garden, or maybe because the garden keeps getting mowed over by the goddamn Hispanics who tend to the grounds of the apartment complex I've been living in since the state forced me to sell my house in Naperville and Barbara took the kids to Phoenix to live with Pilot Bob. Do I have an actual garden? The answer to that is a big fat no, because the goddamn woman in the property office won't listen to reason. She keeps insisting that this is a rental property, not your backyard. Flower borders, that's all we want, she says. So the goddamn Hispanics go out and tend the marigolds along the borders. But do you understand I'm talking about fat, ripe, juicy, delicious red tomatoes that I want to grow with my own two hands through the bountiful mystery and generosity of nature? That dream ended when Barb started sleeping with Pilot Bob and we gave up Naperville. Anyway, would I like a garden? Yes. Matter of fact, I would like a farm. But at the present moment, I'm afraid all I have is apartment 4H at Bell Harbor Manor, which is neither a harbor nor a manor and contains not one single bell. <laughs> which one of you wit wizards came up with the name Bell Harbor Manor? <laughs> May your clever tongues be ripped from their cushy red linings and left to dry on pikes under the native sun of a cannibal land. <laughs> what? And it, it keeps going like that for a while. And that's that's that's, real, that's the way that's the way that this book is funny. Okay. <laughs> um, so Tom Tom Moda is let go. Um, there's this woman named Amber who worries about everything, and among one of the things that she worries about is that Tom is going to come back and shoot up the place. Oh boy! So late in the third act, like when Tom is is fired. He worries that everybody thinks he's a clown because of because of all the weird emails he sends and the pranks that he does. I can't imagine why anybody would think of him as a clown, but he does not want to be thought of that way. And so he comes back to work dressed as a clown. 
and start what? shooting and start shooting people. And no. and you are you are led to believe that he is actually shooting people because the first person he shoots is a guy who he got into an argument with and he shoots him with what is just described as a gun and like there is like red liquid on the person and there's like stinging and they are sure that they're dying but really he's just shooting people with red paintballs. Okay. And then he's tackled in the hallway and arrested and like <laughs> Oh my god. So that's like the that's the third big thread. And there are so many other little relationships between people that we are not going to have time to go no. into. Like Amber has been impregnated by her coworker who is married to somebody else and he is trying to convince her to get an abortion but she does not want to have one. Um there's Jim 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 Jackers who is who really worries about everybody liking him and he has a sign on his wall that says the blank page fears me, even though the blank page is, is what he is afraid of. Like the most of all. <laughs> oh God. Um, and there's, I, I'll read one more like a jaunt of office stuff to kind of like send us off. But like that, that's the kind of, this is all the kind of small stuff that this book mostly concerns itself with you know, uh, around its, its larger points. Yep. Uh, Karen and Larry didn't get on because Larry was an art director and Karen, a senior art director and titles meant everything. Every AD wanted to be an SAD. If you were an SAD, you had your eyes on becoming an Acker. Acker was our phonetic translation of associate creative director. Ackers wanted to be creators, creative directors, and every creator envied the eveeps. You could either be a Creeveep, creative executive vice president, or an Acveep, account services executive vice president, but both species hoped equally to be invited one day into partnership. What the partners dreamed of was the stuff of Magellan, DeGamma, Columbus, and so on. Yeah, okay. They get it. Yeah, it's, whew, it's, it's a dense book, and I feel like the first part maybe drags a little bit. Like I don't, I don't know if you've ever read those books where you're waiting for the book to start. To like kick in, yeah, yeah, and then you and then you realize that this is just what the book is, <laughs> and then like once you re, and then once you recalibrate your your expectations, like the first part of the first section goes quickly, the second section goes quickly just by virtue of being smaller and different, and yeah. then the the second section gives you additional insight into what is what was going on in the first section, and so the third section. Kind of reads, delivers reads, reads on pretty, that. Yeah, it reads pretty speedily after that. And then also it has the whole clown paintball gun incident. Oh, man. Yeah. All right. You could find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out to a bunch of people who reached out to us this week, including Horea, Ducky, Rebecca, Tenacious Cleo, Sirius Rachel, Katie H, Lindsay, Sean, Danielle, Stacy, Pamela, Cameron, Albie, Aaron, Tanner, Abigail, uh, Joe, who recommended this episode to us via email at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, recommended friend, the book, you mean? That's what I meant. Not recommended this email. <laughs> uh, my friend Casey, who gave me a shout out the other day about Ethan Frome and a bunch of like phallic imagery that I missed, including wilting cucumbers, which I think, think has something to do with the pickle dish. Etc. Etc. It all comes back to back the to the pickle dish. dish. Uh, and uh, Melissa W. Who reached out to us about our persuasion episode from too many years ago, a hundred years ago. Um, and roughly. she had some 
critiques about the episode, which I don't think were unfounded. And I want to thank her for, for reaching out because, A, it's exciting that people are going back to the back catalog. But, B, it's proof that feedback has helped improve the show since it started. So, yeah. please keep it coming. Yeah, because Persuasion was, what, in the first, like, two or three dozen shows that we did? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, like, for those of you who do go back to the back catalog, that like that's great. And I think there are some good episodes back there. But I think it was before we'd really found the voice of the show. It was before we were talking about the authors much. I mean, like, the goofing around has always been a part of it. But I think maybe it was less directed than our more recent episodes have been. Like, to use a, that word as loosely as it's possible <laughs> to use it. I also just think we didn't have as good as clear a sense of what people liked about the show so yeah. Yeah. we're trying to deliver on that uh andrew as won... is evident in this episode oh we gave it's... you all the hits on this episode andrew <laughs> if people did want to go listen to the back catalog where should they go um they could go to overduepodcast.com because up there we have links to itunes and rss and stitcher all the places where you can subscribe and download episodes um new ones go up every monday ish we've been pretty good about that lately which i'm happy about um if you subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher, do leave us a rating or a review. Those help us move up the charts, and they also help other people um, learn about the show and, and know what to expect, I guess. Um, also, up on that site, we have links to Amazon. We have Amazon links to the books that we have read that we're going to read. You can click those, buy the books. We get a cut of that. If you want to support us, you can also go to patreon.com slash overdue pod. Pledge a certain amount of money a month to keep us in hosting and in books and in other stuff. Um, and then the last bit of stuff that we've got going on, as we've mentioned on a few other episodes, is that we've got a live show coming up at the end of this month. So that's August 29th um, at 2 p.m. in a tattooed mom bar in Philadelphia. We're going to be reading Harper Lee's Go Set a Watchman in front of a live audience of who I don't know how many people, and I'm going to be trying not to think about it because... I'm nervous about it a little, but I'm sure it'll be great. Yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> it'll be um, just that's, fine. That's part of the Phil the third annual Philadelphia Podcasting Festival. They've got a lot of other great shows um coming out to also perform live. Uh you can find out more about that that festival. They posted the schedule finally up at phillypodfest.com. Real quick, Andrew, what's our code for Book Riot Live? It's a show November 8th and 9th in New York City. It's got a bunch of authors, including Margaret Atwood. What's um, our code? Overdue, all caps. If you use that coupon code when you register, you can get some percent off that I forget what it is. Is it, what is it, 10, 20? Something like that. Somewhere in there. It's a discount, so and they're good, in good They're good health. people. <laughs> They've taken care of us, so we're trying to help take care of them. And we're still uh, trying to figure out like whether we're gonna like be at there. That we're hoping like, to be doing there. anything. We're hoping to be, but that's that we're still working that out. So stay tuned for news about that. Craig, what are you going to read next week? I'm still working on all the King's Men and we have a guest episode coming soon with a special guest. That sounds like a great way to put that. All right, everybody. We'll be back <laughs> next Monday with something. Until then, try to be happy. <laughs>